Our reading this evening is found on page 1220 in the Church Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. So before I read, um, let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, as you speak to us through your word, please help us to hear you clearly and understand what you're telling us. Give us open hearts and minds ready to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Richard, thank you for reading for us. Please do make sure you've got sight there of 1 Peter chapter 2. Those verses we'll be looking at. You might also want sight... Um, of an outline, hopefully you were handed one on the way in, just to scribble down notes or questions. It'd be great to, to continue chatting afterwards about anything maybe that didn't make sense or what it might look like in our lives. And now aggress uh, in a group, even like this, there will have been uh, some of us who in the past have lived overseas. In fact, I know some of us have lived uh, overseas. Or um, for some of us, Tunbridge Wells isn't where we're originally from. But I want us just to think for a moment what it would be like to be a diplomat or an ambassador. I once knew the ambassador in Switzerland, and whilst I'm sure there were many tough parts to his job, it didn't quite stack up to being the US ambassador in somewhere like Iraq, for example. 
In fact, uh, maybe you remember back in 2007, there was a protest involving 300 US diplomats. Uh, they were angry the government was going to force them to accept postings in war-torn Iraq. And one of them even labelled the decision a potential death sentence. And just imagine you were an American diplomat in Iraq. I wonder how it would feel if you're, post you're posted to a country where so many people are opposed to what you stand for. How do you react when someone begins to mock your president or your customs? What do you wear? Do you, do you fit in? Do you flake out? Do you fight? There'd be plenty of dangers and temptations. How do you live as an exile in a hostile world? And that's really the question before us this evening. How will we, if we're a Christian, live as an exile in a hostile world? Over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through this letter. And Peter, the author, has told his readers who they are. He's shown us our identity if we're a Christian. So back in chapter 1, verse 3, we saw we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. At verse 4, we have an inheritance that can never be taken away. Or well, chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And last week we were reminded as Christians we are a holy priesthood, being built up into a spiritual house where God dwells. And in 2 verse 9 we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people who are to proclaim how amazing our God is. But how are we to live as God's people? What's it going to look like day by day to be part of a royal priesthood. Well, next Peter unpacks what it looks like to, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. In 2 verse 11, we're entering a new uh, section as Peter reminds us who we are again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. If you're a Christian, you are a sojourner and exile. Uh, Peter's already said it back in 1 verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember, even in the first uh, sentence of his letter, to those who are elect exiles, he's at pains to remind us this world is not our home. Uh, like a diplomat, we don't take up permanent residence, we don't change our citizenship. No, we still stay loyal, don't we, to our, our home country. We have an inheritance waiting for us. And what do we do in the meantime? Well, if we want to keep going as Christians, if we want to reach those around us more effectively, if we want to know how to react to a world that is increasingly anti-Christian, then we need to hear what God has to say to us in this passage. And it brings us on to our first point this evening, a simple strategy, Teflon and duct tape. Don't worry if you don't know what they are. I'll explain as we go. A simple strategy. There are some people, aren't there, who just uh, love military history. I don't know, maybe you're one of them. Uh, they love just looking at maps and records, uh, reading what made people like Nelson and Washington such great strategists. And what is God's strategy for his people living as exiles in his world? Indeed, how are we to change our, our firm, our school, Tunbridge Wells, the UK, the world? Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter gives us his, his general principle, verses 11 and 12, and then three specific outworkings, verses 13 to 17, 18 to 25, and next week we'll look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So what is Peter's strategy? Uh, it comes in two parts. First part, abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, resist sin in every area of our lives. That's the Teflon bit. We're to be Teflon-coated, when it comes to the passions of the flesh. They just won't stick. I don't know if you've uh, read the book or maybe seen the film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy set during the Cold War, uh, full of spies and moles and you never quite know who to trust and what's really going on. Maybe you work it out by the end. But it, it paints the picture of a war going on beneath the surface. And that's the idea here. That there's a war on, and not with other people, we're not battling social injustice, a battle within ourselves, going on in our souls. These, these passions of the flesh, these sinful desires are waging war against our soul. And Peter says we're to distance ourselves as far as possible, Teflon coated to these sinful passions. That worked out day by day saying, saying no to the things we know displease God and don't fit with having Jesus as our Lord. And so the first part of the strategy to, to turn from sin, the second part Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, literally good. Uh, here's the duct tape uh, when it comes to good deeds. Everything, all, all the good deeds, honourable conduct sticks. Uh, that word honourable is the same as when Peter talks about good deeds later in the verse. In fact, good, the word comes 15 times in this section. and It is uh, two different words in the original, but the meaning is close enough. Here in verse 12, the idea is of a, a goodness just obvious to everyone around you. Living for Jesus both when no one's looking, but also when the world is peering in. And Peter says that's part two of the strategy. And what's the outcome? What's the goal? Verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, it's not a passive strategy. It's a proactive one. It results in God being brought glory. Obviously, God has brought glory as we battle sin, as we seek to do things which honour him. But Peter's got a more specific target in view. He's thinking about the glory that comes to God when Jesus returns and there are people praising him because they saw the way we lived. And as they began to ask questions and find out more, they heard the gospel and repented. They, they put their trust in Jesus and God is glorified when Jesus comes back and finds people praising him. As God's people resist sin and do God, in other words, as they, they live out daily repentance, there'll be some who are drawn by such a, a counter-cultural lifestyle that in time they hear the gospel, become Christians, and glorify God. And verses 11 and 12 assume the lives of Christians will invite questions that we give answers to. Now 3 verse 15, Peter says we should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us. And so we need to be clear, it's the gospel, not our good lives, that results in conversions. But Peter says our lives should give us opportunities to speak of Jesus. He's already said, verse 9, God's people are to proclaim God's excellences. It's another way of saying we should be speaking the gospel. People only become Christians through the living and abiding word of God. 
But as non-Christians see it lived out, they'll, they'll be provoked, prompted to ask more. So it's a little bit like uh, the gospel is that the music uh, playing or the melody playing out of a stereo. Uh, you, can, you can hear it if it's being broadcast, but our lives are like the volume control, kind of how loud people are going to hear it being broadcast. If we abstain from sin and do good, some people will sit up and notice. And did you notice it's doing good among the Gentiles? So we won't be like worldly Wilbur. If your name is Wilbur, this is not a particular word from the Lord. It might be, but it's not an intentional, deliberate word from the Lord. We won't be like worldly Wilbur. He thinks that to reach people, you have to be out there. Wilbur doesn't spend much time with other Christians. He often criticizes them for being a holy huddle. He's often reminding people in church of their freedom in Christ. He, he can be a Christian and he can still drink alcohol, he says. True. But partly because he lacks accountability from Christian friendship and fellowship, Wilbur doesn't just drink but gets drunk. He ends up living the Gentile life among the Gentiles. The non-Christians who know him see him and see no difference. It's no good being seen, but seen to be no different. He, he's not much use as a royal priesthood, one of the go-between, between God and humanity. Uh, neither are we like uh, pious Prunella, though. She spends all her time with other Christians, never missing a Bible study at every prayer meeting, coming to church twice on a Sunday. When her non-Christian friends invite her out, the answer is usually, oh, I'm sorry, I've, I've just got a, another church meeting. Again, don't mishear me. They are all very good things to do. Oh, I'd love to see us all at prayer meetings. Uh, she doesn't let the side down like Wilbur. But floating around in a Christian bubble is still ineffective as a go-between between God and the Gentile world. Although she's different, non-Christians rarely get the opportunity to see that difference. She's living the good life among Christians. Now, much better is biblical Bob. Now, Bob understands both parts of the strategy. He, he battles to flee sin every day. He seeks to live the good life among his non-Christian friends, colleagues. He refuses to keep dishonest accounts at work and gets a bit of abuse for it. Doesn't sleep around and his mates think he's weird. They call him inflexible, prude or worse. So just, just joking around, of course. But over time, they begin to take notice and one or two of them begin to ask questions. And Peter never says it's going to be easy. Verse 12 says it's when, not if. They speak against you as evildoers. And maybe some of us have been on the receiving end of taunts or, or just the cold shoulder. How do we respond when it happens? Well, it's living the simple Christian life. Uh, this strategy saying no to sin and doing good among the non-Christians around us. It is daily repentance. It is as simple and as hard as that. We might be thinking, okay, Tom, I've got the strategy, but what's it going to look like this week? Yeah, I've got various things on. What's it going to look like in practice, particularly surrounded by a hostile world? Well, we, we flagged up, didn't we, those three sections. Be subject in 2.13, 2.18, 3.1. Three areas this strategy is now applied to. Uh, Peter unpacks the strategy on the battlefield, as it were. And in 2.13 to 17, it is submissive subjects, he turns to, first of all. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I think the application is pretty straightforward. But before we just jump straight, there is worth remembering 
what it would have been like as a Christian in Peter's time. Uh, when Peter's writing Nero and was the emperor, if I had more time, I could tell you of some of the terrible things he did to Christians and to non-Christians. So when Peter says his readers are to be subject to all authority, he'd better mean what he's saying. But despite all of this, the strategy does remain the same. We, we resist sin, verses 14 and 16. At verse 14, part of the governor's job is to punish those who do evil. Even an ungodly state can have wise laws helping Christians battle sin. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And we're free from sin. So even when society doesn't think something is wrong, we still live as servants of God. But again, there's two parts, isn't there, to the strategy? Not just turning from sinful behavior. No, Peter's concerned the good deeds of God's people shine out, and particularly in submission to authority. Now, verse 17, not reluctantly or grudgingly, but with honor. Now, verse 14 tells us the governors are to praise those who do, get, do good. That is, there are certain good deeds even non-Christians will recognize as praiseworthy. And again, that's just the, the minimum for Peter. And we resist sin and do good. A simple strategy, but I guess we all find it hard from time to time, which is why we need the motivation Peter gives us. See verse 13, we're subject for the Lord's sake. We don't do it for our own sake, we don't do it for morality's sake, but for Jesus's sake. And the results? Verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's aware there'll be mudslingers, there'll be critics. And his concern is we live such good lives, the mud just won't stick. Perhaps you're, you're just visiting uh, this evening. The idea of being an exile or, or stranger in this world seems quite odd. If that's you, I think Peter would say, get to know some Christians. Uh, kind of examine their lives and see if their behavior is any different. And, and if it is, ask them why. Maybe you could ask some later, if you are just visiting, how someone became a Christian, why they live the way they do. And what about when the authorities punish those who do good or, or even praise those who do evil? Well, verse 17 helps qualify what Peter's already said. Everyone, do you see, is to be honored. It is a leveling command. The, the emperor, by the end of the verse, is just the same as everyone else. Peter says, we show people the honor due to them, no more and no less, but only God is to be feared when obedience to the state or anyone else for that matter will mean disobedience to God. The Christian has but one option. And we need to pray for the wisdom to know when fear of God means no longer honoring the state. Although seeking to live a good life in front of the world, there is a, a prior loyalty to Christian brothers and sisters as we love the brotherhood. Being uh, born again into God's family, loving one another will attract a spectating world. But we might ask, what about when we fail? Well, we need to remember our identity. The strategy isn't what we do to get right with God. It's what's already been achieved by Jesus. This strategy is for those who are sojourners and exiles, those who have been born again. We don't do this to earn God's favor. We do it in response to who he's made us. If we're trusting in Jesus, we are part of God's people. We're part of his go-betweens, that royal priesthood. And so we live as exiles in a hostile world. Uh, 
And 2 verse 5, it's all through Jesus. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's only because of Jesus we can live this way for God's glory. And uh, do make sure your Bibles are uh, open once again to uh, 1 Peter 2 as we continue just to to work through uh, that section from now verses 18 to uh, 25. Uh, Again, you might just want to uh, to have the outline in front of you. We've seen, haven't we already, Peter's uh, simple strategy. Uh, We've seen what it's going to look like in the area of being a citizen of of general everyday life. And in verses uh, 18 to 20, we come uh, next to an area Peter addresses as submissive Uh, servants, uh, submissive servants. Verses 18 to 20, we move to the second scenario and it's all about how servants relate to their masters. Uh, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Uh, The word servants here is an unusual one, not the same as uh, bond servants or slaves we read elsewhere in the New Testament. It's, It's the idea of house servants, domestic help. Uh, servants who often lived in their master's home, who could enjoy a, a familial relationship with their master. And it's these servants, Peter writes to, who are to be subject to their masters with all respect. Now, yes, they're part of uh, God's people. All the privileges of chapters 2, verses 9 to 10 are true of them. But this is how it should look. Uh, the strategy, verses 11 to 12, still applies to them. So again, verse 20, they are to avoid sin. Now what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? It doesn't make sense, says Peter, to be punished for sinning. It's not part of the strategy to lose your job because you are caught stealing from the petty cash box again. It doesn't fit with who God has made you to be stealing from the stationary cupboard, even if everyone else is doing it. No, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't give in. So avoid sin. Secondly, they're, they're to do good. The strategy still applies. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Being subject, not a hugely popular idea nowadays. It's the idea of placing yourself willingly under someone else's authority, not necessarily because they deserve it, but because God's put them in that position. Again, I think the application is clear enough, but we might ask, well, well who is my master? As far as I'm aware, I'm, I'm not a servant. What's it going to look like? Who's my master? And uh, what's this kind of respect going to look like? Uh, I guess maybe, even as we had it read earlier, we've be- begun to draw some parallels to the situation of these servants, to our own situation. And it's not an exact link, but I think there are enough similarities and parallels between the Peter's, uh, people Peter's writing to to us in our, our work situation or school situation. Uh, lots of us have to go to work. We have to go to school. We simply don't get a choice. Or we could think of just how many hours we clock up in the office or, or the classroom each week. A huge part of our lives given over to it. And we're to submit to our masters with respect, literally with fear. I guess most of us want uh, bosses or teachers who are just. Uh, They may not want to be just all the time, but employment law keeps our bosses on the right side of crooked. Uh, Maybe we even get on well with our teacher, but we still need to respect them. And this is going to take proactive thinking and action. But then do you notice Peter raises the bar? 
It might be hard under a good master. What about if they're difficult or unreasonable? Verse 20, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Maybe some of us have, have known that difficulty of an unjust boss. If not, we could probably think of someone in the office who we just hate to work for. Everyone knows they'd hate to work for them. And yet the strategy remains the same, even if we have a tough master. You see, we don't have a right as a Christian to be treated fairly by our boss. We do as a, as a UK citizen, but not as a Christian. Now, as a Christian, we have a responsibility, a strategy even, to abstain from sin and do good. Now, because of all we've been learning so far uh, in this letter of what is true of Christians, it would be very easy to take pride in, in our identity, to demand to be treated, well, I'm, I'm part of the royal priesthood, don't you know? We can imagine a slave turning to their master saying, don't you know, I'm one of God's people now. I've been chosen by him. I've been born again, part of his own possession. I don't need to do what you say. Uh, but we don't. We don't act like that. Of course we don't act like that. Uh, Peter gives us yet another reason as we see the result in verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Well, verse 20 again, when, if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uh, will, will living this way mean that my boss or teacher automatically gets converted? Well, no. In fact, it may well result in, in more suffering. But even if avoiding sin and doing good isn't a good thing in our boss's eyes, it is gracious in God's sight. Our boss might not like it if we refuse to just massage the accounts. Uh, but God, God will see it and he's pleased. But we might ask, well, is this really possible? How can I, how can I actually live like this? And it brings us to, to the driving force in verses 21 to 25. If we've begun to just doze off, we had too much Sunday lunch, please do just kind of uh, wake up. If the person next to you is beginning to doze off, you, you, know, you can gently, lovingly nudge them. Because uh, here is uh, the kind of the model to follow. Here is the suffering servant, the, mo the motivation. As we see the crosses, the way in and the way on in the Christian life. Now, some Christians every now and again talk about being called to be a doctor. Uh, called to be a lawyer. I've even, I think, maybe had someone feeling called to be a surfer in Hawaii or work with surfers in Hawaii. Did you notice verse 21? What is every Christian called to do? Verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's what it means to be elect, chosen. Here's what we've been called to. We are called to live out Jesus' death day by day. Christ suffered for us so that we might suffer like him and for his sake. Now, when things get tough at work, our, our colleagues might look to the weekend, they might look to the appointment section in the newspaper or online. The Christian looks to the cross. And when we were uh, teaching our boys to write, we'd get them to, to copy an outline of a letter. Maybe if you're a teacher, you can kind of know that you've done that. Uh, again and again and again, copying the outline. Uh, that's the idea here, that the cross of Christ is the example, the template, the outline for us to follow. Like a, a child learning their alphabet, tracing paper, or, or geography students kind of filling in maps with coloured crayons. Our lives, over time, take on the shape of the cross. If someone were to, to draw a line 
around our life. They should get a picture of Jesus, or more particularly, a picture of the cross. And what is the the template like? How, How did Jesus act on the way to the cross? Well, unsurprisingly, I hope, Jesus perfectly lived out God's strategy. He committed no sin. Verse 22, he he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Using language straight from Isaiah 53, Peter reminds us, despite suffering more than we could imagine, he never retaliated, never sinned. I wonder how would we have reacted. I'm often so quick to defend myself. Uh, not Jesus. No, he avoided sin all the way to the cross. And he continued to do good. He, he continued to do his job to submit to his father's will. Verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Like a, a mountaineer who keeps the summit in view as they're, they're going step after step. Jesus kept his father in view as he pushed through the pain all the way to the cross. Whilst Jesus was being judged unjustly, he knew his father would one day judge everyone justly. And so Jesus entrusts himself to his father, obeying him, doing his will, not my will but yours be done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He pressed on, avoiding sin, doing good, bearing our sins on the cross. Continue to do good despite being unfairly treated. In fact, in the history of the world, think about it, there has been no one who has ever been more unfairly treated, unjustly treated than Jesus. If anyone deserves the red carpet treatment, it was him. He should have been worshipped, adored by everyone. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It is simply impossible to expect the easy life, and to be a Christian, at least according to Peter. And God may grant us seasons in life where we don't have so many battles to face. But the pattern we keep coming back to is Jesus' self-sacrifice. In verses 18 to 20, Peter tells the slaves to endure the suffering that comes from an unjust master. And here is the drive to do that. When we're badly managed as an employee, Well, our teacher just treats us totally unfairly. We think of the cross. When threatened with job cuts, redundancy, when underpaid or unappreciated, when treated unfairly or rudely, Peter says, just think, not so much what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? And it doesn't stop there, does it? We also rejoice in the results of the cross. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserve. He bore our sins that we might be forgiven. Die to sin, avoid sin, live to righteousness. That's the only way we can live out the strategy because Jesus bore our sins in his body. And the Bible is clear that by nature uh, we're spiritually sick. Well, dead in fact. But if we come to Jesus by his wounds, we've been healed. We were lost. 
but we've been brought back to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of our souls through his death. And Peter says we've been called in and through and to the cross. It is a continual thing as we we rejoice in what Jesus has achieved for us at the cross. We keep returning to the cross to die to sin and live to righteousness. We keep returning to Jesus each day, remembering his once for all time sacrifice. Might be you've never done that. Well, if that is you, don't delay. Do come to Jesus for forgiveness. It's a bit like the cross is the medicine that brings life, the food that sustains us day by day, the compass that shows us the way to go, the model we're to bring our lives into conformity with. You see, in using language from Isaiah 52 and 53, the passage that talks about Jesus as the suffering servant, Peter's showing us that Jesus is the model to any suffering servant. What an encouragement. So our aim as we suffer, that actually we're not pointing people to ourselves, but pointing people to Jesus, the suffering servant. As the cross shapes our lives, the cross both enables and models our service of Jesus. And so we live not by guilt, but by grace. So as we draw to a close, how does it apply? Well, I really think hopefully the whole uh, time this evening has been uh, underlining that for us. Uh, Peter's not telling us to be doormats for the sake of being doormats, but to model the cross. Uh, Peter's not saying it's never okay to, to lodge complaints, we can't challenge injustice and so on and so forth. He's, it's not to say we shouldn't use our freedom to change our circumstances, though we do need to remember that in a fallen world there are no perfect jobs or schools, we simply swap one set of imperfections for another set. We do need to pray for the wisdom to know what we should patiently endure and what we should seek to change. That would be a great thing to pray. And we need to ask for God's help to recognise when there are things that will mean putting him before submitting to our boss or, or teachers. Often we'll feel tied to a job we'd rather not be at, but we think we've got no option. And, and this is, I think, really realistic teaching from Peter. It doesn't take a genius to realise we can't control everything in the world. We can't control the weather, and there's not much we can do if a storm hits, but we can control our response. We can't choose our boss or our teachers often, but we can control our response and model the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do all of it standing firm in the true grace of God, remembering that God ultimately is the one who's called us to his eternal glory in Christ, and he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. That's Peter's aim for his readers in chapter 5. And I've, I've found reading this that it massively raises the bar for everyday Christian living. Everyday, godly Christian lives being lived out in the world amongst non-Christians proclaiming God's excellences will change the world. It is the normal Christian life. It is living the cross-shaped life. It is as simple and as hard as that. For to this you've been called Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps.